Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to our first Big Milestone episode 50 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes for people who love history and a good story but have neither the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. This episode is sponsored by Catholic Balm Co., the very best in beard balms, oils, lotion bars, and more. When you head over to catholicbalm.co, catholicbalm.co, to check out their great variety of products, be sure to enter the word Pope at checkout and you'll get 10% off your entire order. So once again, that's catholicbalm.co and the word P-O-P-E, Pope, at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Balm Co. for sponsoring the podcast. Well, this time around, we're doing something a little different, friends, a topic that's more foundational to the very papacy itself to celebrate this half-century mark, the only truly secret meeting left on the planet, where all the red hats gather for a Catholic cage match, and the world waits, holding its breath, for that fateful white smoke. This week on the Popecast, we ask and answer the question, how are popes elected? Now, some of you may be wondering why the switch up and why this particular topic right now. Yes, of course, Pope Francis is by all accounts alive and well and a relatively healthy 83-year-old with plenty of vigor left. He did, after all, just call out the mafia again, this time demanding that they stop co-opting Mary, the mother of God, for use in growing their criminal influence across Italy. So how a pope is elected is one of those evergreen topics. That's more or less why we picked it. And one of those fascinating rituals for Catholics and non-Catholics alike. Captivating for its hearkening back to a bygone era to say nothing of the fact that there have been only nine papal elections in the past 100 years. The whole thing is utterly foreign to our modern sensibilities, from the symbolic rites following a pope's death to the 100 men from across the globe being locked in a room completely cut off from the outside world until a new successor of St. Peter emerges in white. Plus, it Turns out this is kind of a nice recap of a bunch of different episodes that we've done over the last few years since the Popecast's inception. As we talk about the various stages of papal election, it turns out that we've covered a lot of them and a lot of the stories, so you'll uh, stay tuned for that throughout this episode. So those are a few of the reasons why we thought this might be a good topic to cover for episode 50, and we hope you enjoy it and share with a friend when you've finished listening. So for starters, I'll define a few of the key terms as a refresher and go over a quick rundown of the history of papal elections. It hasn't all been quite as neat and tidy as things run these days. Then we'll walk through the actual process itself that goes into effect when a pope dies or, I suppose, resigns, as in the case with Pope Benedict XVI most recently. And finally, to satiate the trivia nerds among us, myself included, some papal election fun facts to close things up. Okay, so some key terms to kick us off here. The first one might seem a bit pedantic, bear with me, but pope is the first term to define. The, po- the word pope comes from the Latin papa, which comes from the Greek papas, P-A-P-P-A-S, meaning father, both of those. The pope of the Roman Catholic Church is, at the most basic level, the chief pastor, spiritual father of the worldwide Catholic Church. But he's also the bishop of Rome itself, and is, of course, the successor of St. Peter given that St. Peter took the reins of the early church, starting in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus bestowed upon Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So that's the word pope. The next term is the Latin phrase sede vacante. This phrase translates to mean vacant seat, literally. Seat, of course, though, refers to the chair of St. Peter in the case of popes. 
the papal throne in that case, but more broadly, the phrase can also refer to a bishop of a particular diocese. When a diocese is without a bishop, whether he dies or resigns, the seat being the cathedra in all cases of the bishop, which is the chair of the bishop, incidentally, that lies in the cathedral, right? Why we call the mother church of a diocese the cathedral. So the interregnum between popes, the period from when one pope dies or resigns to when the next one is elected, is referred to as a state of sede vacante. A little fun fact here, actually, after Pope Benedict XVI resigned and before Pope Francis was elected, uh, some of you may have noticed back in 2013, the papal Twitter account was scrubbed of Benedict's likeness, the tweets deleted, and the name on the account was changed to sede vacante. So a nice little uh, modern innovation, uh, perfectly harmless, right? Okay, the next term is cardinal. A cardinal is basically just an honorific title. We all have seen, you know, the, the cardinals wearing red, their red regalia bestowed, uh, but they're bestowed in order to elect future popes, basically. So cardinals can be priests or bishops. Most often they're bishops or even archbishops. Uh, but that's, of course, a pretty cut and dry description for the sake of time. There's a lot more that goes into the, the uh, who the cardinals are and how they came to be. But the actual word cardinal comes from the Latin cardo, meaning hinge or pivot. I guess technically more pivotal because it was used originally to describe the heads of churches within Rome itself, pivotal figures. And the word appeared in recorded history for the first time in 769 AD. So we've been using that term for almost 1300 years. The group of cardinals is collectively referred to as the College of Cardinals. And at the present moment contains 221 men from around the world. 122 of those are eligible to vote for the next pope if, if Pope Francis were to die today, if, God forbid, uh, they're them being under the voting age of 80 years old. So only cardinals under age 80 can vote for a pope. In terms of their spread across the world, where they all come from, 102 of them come from Europe, around 25 each hail from North America, South America, Africa, and Asia, respectively. Central America has nine and Oceania, the Pacific Islands has six. So that's the term cardinal. The last term we'll define before getting to the history is conclave. So the conclave from the Latin cum clave, meaning with a key, is the term for the secret gathering of cardinals in the Sistine Chapel to elect a new pope. They literally are locked away from the outside world. Not, of course, in the Sistine Chapel itself for days on end, but uh, locked away from the outside world until a new pope is chosen. And speaking of conclaves, how did that become the chosen way of electing a new leader of the Catholic Church. Surprisingly, no. Pope St. Linus, Pope number two, was not elected in the Sistine Chapel by the remaining disciples and their successors when St. Peter was martyred. They weren't wearing red robes either. That should be no surprise. Neither of those things would come around for many more centuries. So how did we get to where we are now? Well, as it turns out, the church down through the ages has adopted more or less of a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mindset when it comes to papal elections, and only they usually tend to wait to make sure things are really, really, really bad before they try to fix it. It's kind of like uh, Kitchen Nightmares. You remember the Gordon Ramsay show where he'd go in and fix the failing restaurant. It's like Kitchen Nightmares where there's been rotten food in the fridge for months, and they finally get around to asking Gordon Ramsay to, to spruce things up a bit, only it's a global organization. In this case, it's supposed to be representing God on earth. So I digress. Anyway, for the for pretty much the first half of the church's life, over a thousand years, popes were elected more or less by popular actual acclamation of the Roman laity and clergy. There was no actual standard procedure really before the year 1059. So literal, literally a thousand years had passed before there was really a standard procedure for electing a pope. Longtime listeners of the Pope Castle will remember the Pope and martyr St. Fabian from episode number four. 
Just as one example, he was elected because no one could decide on a new pope, and a dove landed on his head. This was in the 3rd century. So the simple farmer, Fabian, who came in from the countryside to see what was going on, to watch the proceedings, was all of a sudden unanimously thrust into leadership as the 20th pope. And in fact, just after St. Fabian, St. Cyprian was recording the story of Pope St. Cornelius's election in the mid-3rd century to show us, more or less, recorded in history that it was, it was basically just a popular acclamation of the people that would elect a pope. But once Christianity became legal, it became way too easy for various temporal powers to control papal elections for their own benefit. Sometimes popes tried to appoint their own successor before death. A person can understand why, of course, but that never really went over too well in practicality. A guy wanted to kind of continue the work that that he'd done, but, you know, especially when there was a big crowd that maybe didn't like the guy who just died, it didn't really bode well for the guy that he had handpicked. But thankfully, a lot of the time, the emperors or kings of the day simply just had to play referee. But after the infamous pornocracy of the 10th century led the church into truly dark times, followed by the, of course, 20-something Pope Benedict IX, see episode number six, when he reigned legitimately as Pope three different times, something had to give. And so, in 1059, Pope Nicholas II finally decreed the papal bull in nomine domini, instituting major reforms of the process of electing a new pope, and most notably making the rule that we have now, of course, that only cardinal bishops, the highest of the three ranks of cardinals, could vote to elect a pope. So this is the first time in history that only cardinals were limited to uh, be able to elect a pope. But of course, that process itself would be abused time and again, and the age-old tradition of public acclamation would still you know, come to light every so often even less than actually 20 years after Nicholas decreed the new rules. Ironically, in the election of one of the great popes the church has ever seen, Pope St. Gregory VII, this happened. So see episode number 15 for Gregory VII. But the next big change came 200 years later at the hands of blessed Pope Gregory X, episode 2. You can see why this was, this was a fitting thing. There was lots of popes that we've covered in the past who happened to have touched on this papal election procedure. So why did Gregory X feel the need to revise things further? Well, after it took the assembled cardinals at Viterbo two years and seven months to elect him, during which uh, the period apparently the residents of the town, it wasn't in Rome, it was in Viterbo, uh, the residents of the town first restricted the cardinals' diet to bread and water because it was taking so long, and when that didn't work, they actually stripped the roof off of the place in order to get them to hustle a little bit. But in any case, With the 1274 reform came the recognizable conclave format that we have today, where the cardinals were confined, isolated in order to speed things up a bit, as you can see why. Unsurprisingly, when Gregory presented the document for a vote, the bishops all resoundingly approved, the bishops, but the cardinals grumbled. Apparently they liked taking their sweet time. After that point, aside from another Gregory, Gregory XV, making the unspoken rule of a two-thirds majority official in 1621, just about 400 years later, the rules for papal conclaves remained largely unchanged from the 13th century until the 20th century, in which several popes have simply done some fine-tuning. Papal elections have been held, for the most part, in Rome since the 15th century, the 1400s, except when political uprising has prevented it, and has been in the Sistine Chapel for every election since 1878. So that's how we got here. Now, what happens when a pope dies, or I guess technically resigns in, in most of these cases? As soon as a pope takes his last breath, 
The tradition remains that the Cardinal Camerlengo, historically the Pope's property administrator, one of his, his key aides, calls out the Pope's baptismal name, not his papal name, three times in the presence of several other papal officials. So whenever Pope Francis dies, again, God forbid, uh, not for a long time, he won't call out Francis, Francis, Francis. He will say his baptismal name, Jorge, Jorge, Jorge. Uh, when they, it, It's more ceremonial these days, of course, but the Camerlengo then locks the Pope's living quarters and takes his ring, known as the Ring of the Fisherman, along with a papal seal. And he later destroys them in the presence of the whole College of Cardinals, an act originally meant to avoid forgery of documents after the Pope had kicked the bucket. But now, of course, it's just simply done as a symbol of the end of the Pope's reign. The Cardinals then, in the meantime, of course, make their way to Rome from all the corners of the world and gather for what's called the General Congregation of the Cardinals to discuss not only the future of the Church, but to make arrangements for the Pope's burial and, of course, to prepare and conduct the new conclave. The Pope's burial itself takes place four to six days following his death, allowing for the dead pontiff to lie in state and be viewed by mourners. I'm sure many listeners will remember uh, John Paul's funeral back in 2005. The funeral happens in the middle of a nine-day period of mourning known as the Novem Dialis, which basically just means nine days. The conclave itself, after all of that's finished up, begins typically on the f- between the 15th and the 20th day after the Pope dies. That's basically just for practicality, if some cardinals are still having trouble traveling to Rome, for instance. But on the day the conclave is set to begin, the cardinals gather for Mass first in St. Peter's Basilica to pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in selecting a new successor of St. Peter. They then process into the Sistine Chapel while singing the Litany of Saints. Each of the cardinals places his hand on a book of the Gospels and professes an oath to maintain secrecy, to defend the Holy See if elected, and to ignore any potential instructions from secular authorities in terms of voting. Once all that's done, the papal master of ceremonies shouts the Latin phrase extra omnis, literally everybody out, before uh, locking the doors of the Sistine Chapel to begin the conclave. I don't know if anybody else remembers it, but it was an epic shot. NBC News, I think, was what I was watching in, in 2013 when uh, Monsignor Guido Marini, the papal master of ceremonies, it was a, a from the ground shot. So the doors looked even more gigantic than normal. And he's closing the doors and locking the cardinals in and the conclave began. Only the cardinals and very few attendants are, are allowed to be present for the proceedings themselves. Each day consists of a maximum of four ballots counted aloud by three randomly selected cardinals assigned as vote counters. During the actual ballot casting process, each cardinal will walk up to the ballot box that's intentionally placed below the uh, back wall mural of Michelangelo's Last Judgment, as if to say, make sure you're you're voting with your conscience and not with your ambitions or something along those lines, right? But in any case, so there's three randomly selected cardinals assigned as vote counters. Three other randomly selected cardinals take a ballot and box to any cardinals who may be sick and in the infirmary. For the voting process, and then then there's a third set of three cardinals known as revisers who are responsible for checking the ballots, those who received votes, and the totals for each to make sure no errors were made. At the end of each ballot, all of them are burnt in a special stove that feeds up the famous Sistine Chapel chimney. If a two-thirds majority hasn't been reached on a particular ballot, chemicals are added to make black smoke billow from the chimney, and the proceedings continue. If a pope has been elected, however, white smoke is sent up the chimney to the waiting world outside to indicate that a new pope has been chosen. As soon as the necessary votes are received, the head of the College of Cardinals, the Cardinal Dean, 
along with two others, ask the Pope-elect if he accepts his new office. He is, of course, free to refuse, though typically anybody, traditionally speaking, who does so will explicitly state it before ever receiving enough votes, just saying that they won't accept it if they actually get the necessary vote tally. This actually happened uh, in the conclave that elected John Paul II, fun fact. They then ask what name the new pope wishes to be called and leads him into what's called the Room of Tears, named for the overwhelming emotion that typically befalls a new pope, which is where he will change into his papal garb. The Room of Tears is a small room just off the Sistine Chapel, where the new pope finds three sizes of the papal white cassock, among various other items he can choose to don or not, for the sake of time. We won't go into all of those. But once he's ready, the senior cardinal deacon appears on the loggia overlooking St. Peter's Square to say in Latin, Annuncio vobis gaudium magnum, habemus papam, which in English translates to, I announce to you a great joy. We have a pope. He then announces the last name of the cardinal who's been elected, along with his newly chosen papal name, and then bows out to give way to the new pope appearing on the balcony himself to greet the world and impart the traditional urbi et orbi blessing, Latin for to the city of Rome and to the world. So, here's hoping you can just store this information away and not actually have to use it for many years to come. There may be some folks who wish otherwise uh, that there might be a papal election sooner, but those people probably should just go to confession, am I right? I kid, but not really. Okay, as we close things up today, here's a few fun facts about papal elections down through the ages. We'll start with some numbers. The first fun fact, the first number is 18. 18, believe it or not, is the age of the youngest pope ever to be elected, Pope John XII. You can catch his full story on episode 33 of the Popecast, but suffice it to say his uh, daddy got him the job back in the 10th century, and he died at the hands of a husband whose wife he was caught in bed with. The next number, 79. 79 years and 290 days is the age of the oldest pope at the time of his election, and that honor belongs to Pope Clement X, incidentally the subject of one of our more recent episodes, episode 44. This is especially remarkable considering it was 1670 when he was that old and still able-bodied, and people just didn't live as long back then, of course. So for context, Pope Benedict XVI is fifth on that list. He was 78 years and three days old when he was elected, and Pope Francis is actually ninth, having been elected at 76 years old and 86 days. A last number, 93. 93 is the age of the oldest pope at death or resignation, and that honor belongs to Pope Leo XIII, who died a little over 100 years ago in 1903. He had been pope for just over a quarter century, 25 years and I think 100 and some days when he died. For a gauge of just how old Leo was, imagine Benedict XVI still being Pope today. Because at the time I'm I'm recording this, Benedict is actually just 10 days shy of the age that Leo was when he died. 93 years, 140 days. Two more fun facts. There have actually been cases, believe it or not, of non-cardinals and even non-priests being elected to the chair of Peter. The last Pope to have not been a cardinal at the time of his election was Pope Urban VI in 1378, and the last pope not to have even been a priest actually came later, 150 years later, when Pope Leo X was elected, one of the notorious so-called bad popes and one of yours truly's least favorites. His full story is the subject of episode 30. So there's some fun facts for you. To cap this special 50th episode of the Popecast, we'll end with a quote from the great Pope St. John Paul II from his 1996 revisions to the papal election process, the document Universi Dominici Gregis, Latin for the Lord's whole flock. In this particular excerpt, he describes the Pope's right to keep the papal election process sharp over the years and affirms the College of Cardinals' role as the perfect body 
to continue choosing future Petra and successors. So here's John Paul, quote, It is in fact an indisputable principle. The Roman pontiff has the right to define and adapt to changing times the manner of designating the person called to assume the Petrine succession in the Roman see. This regards, first of all, the body entrusted with providing for the election of the Roman pontiff based on a millennial practice sanctioned by specific canonical norms and confirmed by an explicit provision of the current code of canon law. This body is made up of the College of Cardinals of Holy Roman Church. While it is indeed a doctrine of faith that the power of the Supreme Pontiff derives directly from Christ, whose earthly vicar he is, it is also certain that this supreme power in the Church is granted to him, quote, by means of lawful election accepted by him, together with Episcopal consecration, end quote. A most serious duty is thus incumbent upon the body responsible for this election. Consequently, the norms which regulate its activity need to be very precise and clear so that the election itself will take place in a most worthy manner, as befits the office of utmost responsibility which the person elected will have to assume by divine mandate at the moment of his ascent. Confirming, therefore, the norm of the current code of canon law, which reflects the millennial practice of the Church, I once more affirm that the College of Electors of the Supreme Pontiff is composed solely of the Cardinals of Holy Roman Church, in them one finds expressed in a remarkable synthesis the two aspects which characterize the figure and office of the Roman pontiff. Roman, because identified with the bishop of the church in Rome, and thus closely linked to the clergy of this city, represented by the cardinals of the presbyteral and diaconal titles of Rome, and to the cardinal bishops of the suburbicarian sees. Pontiff of the universal church because called to represent visibly the unseen pastor who leads his whole flock to the pastor's of eternal life. The universality of the church is clearly expressed in the very composition of the College of Cardinals, whose members come from every continent. End quote. What a great gift to the church and the world, and fascinating to boot, right? Well, that's it for this week. Just a couple more things here before we sign off. The fact that you're listening to the show and you've gotten this far all the way through that long quote, uh, hopefully it wasn't too boring. Uh, You seem to be enjoying yourself, right, as a fan of the Popecast. So if that's true, would you consider heading over to patreon.com slash the Popecast and joining us as a a supporter for a couple of bucks per episode? On that note, a special thanks to our newest patrons, of course, who just joined since our last episode. Your patronage helps cover things like our hosting costs and the ability to produce these new episodes. Plus, patrons get things like early access to new episodes and other great freebies depending on your per-episode tier. So check it out, patreon.com slash the Popecast. Also, we've got a couple of new reviews up over at iTunes. Five stars from both DocBurr05 and Marie5573. So, so thank you both for those kind words. Marie said she's just discovered the Popecast and has been reading the Pope's In a Year daily emails, which I wrote uh, several years back. She's been reading those for the past few years. And Doc Burr says, quote, they give me great perspective about how to reconcile better the meeting of the human and the divine with these very human popes. It's like listening to family stories that prove that truth can be so much more stranger and entertaining than fiction. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Thanks again to you both for those for those reviews. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the Popecast over at iTunes. Those help others find and listen to the show as well. Plus, we'll be sure, of course, as we just did here, to give you a shout-out and read those out on a future episode if you leave a review. So thanks again to our sponsors over at Catholic Balm Co. That's catholicbalm.co. And the word Pope at checkout. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook if you haven't already. All at the Popecast for daily Pope quotes and old photos. And as we end this milestone episode, let us give thanks for the gift of the papacy, warts and all. Until next time. <laughs>